Well, good morning, church family. Uh, It's good to be back uh, with you uh, here this morning. Uh, As Pastor Andy John has already kind of greeted you via video this morning, I'm thankful for the opportunity uh, that he's given me to to fill the pulpit. I'm thankful for his leadership. Uh, uh, Like he said in the video, my name is Josh Shirley. I work here as our discipleship pastor. Uh, Some of you may not realize that's what I do because I was our student pastor before that. Uh, It's actually three years, uh, beginning of this month, my family and I moved uh, back to the North Alabama area. We were living in Houston, Texas for two years and then Memphis, Tennessee. I'm originally from Muscle Shoals, so don't hold that against me. I know some of you are also from Muscle Shoals, so we'll hang in there together. Uh, But I do appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning with you. Uh, Just to kind of give you a little bit of introduction to myself and kind of what I do now as discipleship pastor. Uh, I know it's kind of a new title to that role, but I'm replacing Randy Brown and his team. And I say I'm replacing, but I'm not really doing that. I'm trying to fill Randy's shoes and Miss Janet and Miss Beverly and all the things that they took care of to kind of make our group go well, all the things they did behind the scene, even way back before then, for those of you that have been here for a long time, you know Brother Sonny Schofield, and just all the things that he did to set our groups up to be successful. Our groups are one of the main ways that our church uses to connect people to the body here at Lindsay Lane and to kind of make a big church uh, feel smaller. And one of the other things that I love to do uh, is discipleship. It's always been a passion of mine. I appreciate our pastor. If you've been with us the last few weeks, like one of the things that he has emphasized, and I didn't pay him to do it, but he's emphasized in his sermons is discipleship and teaching people God's word and helping them to grow in it. And even as we sang this morning, if you picked up on it, I didn't ask Dwayne to pick those songs or anything like that. But as we sang those songs, like we sang truths from beginning of scripture all the way through the end about who God is and what he's done. And I love discipleship because it has been such an important part of my life. Uh, I grew up in church, like my grandmother was a pastor secretary at First Baptist Muscle Shoals growing up. So I spent all of my time at church and then we moved churches to Highland Park Baptist uh, there in Muscle Shoals as well. Uh, And my youth pastor, Mike Knowles, kind of took me in when I didn't want to be a part of student ministry. Uh, He made me come. He recruited a group of uh, other students that were older and bigger than me uh, to basically drag me to youth group. Um, And we met before church on Wednesday nights as a group of guys just to kind of pray share about our week. He challenged me to, to memorize scripture, to, to learn God's word. But one of the other things that he did in that discipleship process was he just took me with him. Uh, he was a, a salesman for a, a, a company there in Muscle Shoals, and I would travel with him when I had the opportunity, and we'd just spend time talking and him teaching me, and I, I appreciated it. And he modeled that to me, and then I in turn did the same. When I graduated high school and went to UNA for college, I kept serving in student ministry uh, and just kind of took some guys from the youth group under my wing and just did what I'd been taught to do. And I did the same thing. That was my pattern in Memphis and my pattern in Texas and, and doing the same here in the short time that we had uh, serving in student ministry. So discipleship in this role uh, has been a, a big part of my life and I'm excited about it. I would tell you, I'm not one of those people that like has a life verse or anything like that, or like I've got a motto, but like one of the driving forces in my life in terms of discipleship comes from Colossians chapter one, verses 28 and 29. It says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And that's really been my heart for discipleship. 
And so I wanted to share that with you just to kind of introduce myself uh, and, and let you know a little bit about like what I'm doing in this role that I'm in now and kind of my heart for discipleship. And so uh, as we start our morning together, we're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. And we're going to read a short passage from there in verses 12 through 17. But as you're turning there, what I'd like for you to do is to think and to consider uh, some of these questions that I've got for you. Now, you don't have to answer them out loud. Uh, you don't have to raise your hand or anything like that. Uh, I mean, I guess if you wanted to, you could, but you don't have to. But if I were to ask you this morning, have you ever in your life, or maybe even today or this week or this past month, have you ever felt like maybe you're just not good enough? Have you ever felt like you're in over your head or maybe you're overwhelmed by life? Maybe you're overwhelmed by your job. Maybe you're overwhelmed by employees that work for you. Or maybe uh, if you're honest, you don't have to raise your hand because they might be beside you. Maybe you're overwhelmed by your family. Uh, maybe you're overwhelmed by friends and just feel like you cannot keep up. Or maybe you, do you ever look at others and wonder how in the world are they holding it together? And I'm over here. I've got the smile on my face because that's what I'm supposed to do and say I'm fine. But on the inside, I'm just barely getting through or I'm barely getting through this day. Maybe it's an emotional thing. Maybe it's a mental thing. Or maybe it's just uh, you're exhausted. Maybe you're just physically exhausted. So think about those questions. And as we think about that, like what we're going to read this morning is hopefully you'll hear it. It's a letter of encouragement. Uh, but I know you may be thinking as I asked you those questions like, okay, like I don't know this guy or I don't know him that well. What does he know about feeling like this this way? How can he be exhausted, overwhelmed or discouraged, etc.? Uh, I've heard it said, and I know my, my cousins joke with me. I have a cousin who's also in the ministry. So my brother and his brother like to joke with us and say, what do you know about work? Because you really only work two days a week. Like you only work on Wednesdays and Sundays. Uh, or maybe you think as, as ministers that everybody just loves them and all they ever do is go out to eat or drink coffee or talk around the office. Um, maybe those are some of your thoughts because I had those same thoughts before I got into ministry. I remember thinking those same things and then I started in full-time ministry. When I started in full-time ministry, Amanda and I had just gotten married in June. We started in October at a church called Kirby Woods Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. If you've ever been through Memphis, it's right off the interstate, right on Poplar, like right in the middle of the business district. And I started there serving full-time as their, as their high school pastor. And when I started, I was like, man, I'm so excited. Like I was 25, young, married. We did not have kids at that point in time. Uh, we, we were living in student housing for seminary, so I'm still in seminary. And physically, like I knew in my mind, like I'm 25, my oldest kids are 18. I can do this job. I can keep up with them. I can go to all the games. I can, I can still play basketball with them, and they're not going to beat me on a Wednesday night. Like I can do all the things with them, and I'm good. And Physically, yes, I was always busy, but I loved it. But what I quickly discovered was the mental and emotional uh, toil that came along with serving in ministry. You know, work was exciting, and I, I often adjusted to all the changes that came along over the years. Like I said, when we started, we didn't have kids. And uh, you know, like I do, if you have kids, that life completely changes when you have kids. Uh, and you have to adapt, and you have to, you're no longer on your own schedule or your own time, but now you're on their schedule and you're on their time. And not to embarrass my oldest daughter, Harper, but she didn't sleep through the night till she was about 18 months old. Uh, and so that was a lot of adjusting for us as a 
family uh, in that time. And we're still serving at the church. And then as even over the years, as we moved to Texas and then moving here three years, like I love serving people through the local church. Like, I love it. Like, that's what the Lord put on my heart to do many years ago. And it's just always been a part of who I am and what he's called me to do. But I would tell you that the hard part is that mental and emotional toll. Maybe that's you in your life. Like, whatever it is that you do or go about your life, you're like, physically, I got it. Or maybe physically, you're worn out. Or, but it's really that emotional and uh, mental toll that takes on you. You wonder often if people really like you. You wonder, are you leading people in the right direction? Or if you're like me, uh, I run through scenarios in my mind all the time. I run through situations. I run through outcomes in my mind all the time because that's just who I am. Like I'm a people pleaser. I like to find solutions to problems. I don't like people being mad or frustrated with me. So if I can fix it, I'm going to fix it. Uh, and so, and now not, I don't want you to get the, the opinion or the thought like, well, he's never messed up anything. I have. You can uh, ask my parents or you could ask my wife or you can ask people that we served in the church ministry. Like I can remember like moving from Memphis to Texas and like trying to start a ministry there and, and working hard to get to know people there. And the Lord putting on my heart, a lady that uh, had kind of always had a sharp word towards me at our church in Memphis and telling me how I should or should not do ministry. And we just never really got along. It wasn't that like we were always mad at each other, but we just didn't get along. And I can remember the Lord putting on my heart, like, hey, listen, I know you're in this new position and I put you here, but you need to call that lady and ask her for forgiveness. And I, you're probably like me. I did not want to do that. But the Lord led me to do that. And, and that relationship was restored. Uh, but, you know, all of these things in, in serving in ministry or serving in whatever it is that the Lord has called you to do, it takes a toll on us. Like it, it mentally, maybe physically or emotionally, it takes a toll on us. And sometimes in those moments, like we look around and we think, what have I got myself into? How do I fix this? Or how do I get out of this? And what is going to make a difference in my life? Well, I can tell you, and as we'll see in scripture, uh, what has helped or made the difference in my life has been that the Lord always provides people in my life that, are, that bring an encouraging word. Whether that's them sending a card or a note or a phone call or a text message or just saying, hey, listen, I'm praying for you. And sometimes it's been people uh, that we know, like I can tell you, like but my grandparents have been faithful all of my life to pray for me. And even over the past few years, just calling to say, hey, how can we be praying for you? But not just family, which is kind of expected most of the time. But I can, I mean, we moved to Texas. We moved to a town called Pasadena right outside of Houston, Texas. And I can remember there's a man there that did not know me from anybody. And his name was David Tate. And he would come up to me every Sunday and ask me, how can I pray for your family? And here's how I've prayed for you this week. And that meant a lot to us as a people who, or as a family that had nobody else really uh, there that like poured into us or we thought cared about us at a, at a certain time. But God always puts those people in our lives. Uh, and this morning, what I want us to look at in this passage is what it means to receive encouragement and what it means as we receive that encouragement to serve the Lord. So when we get to this text in 1 Timothy, I know you may think he had us turn our Bibles there and he's not there yet, but I am. But when we get to this text in 1 Timothy, I want you to hear and understand some encouraging words from Paul, the author, to a young pastor. In this letter, and there's a 1 Timothy, you obviously are smart enough to know there's a 2 Timothy and then Titus as well, that Paul writes to these young pastors 
as a word of encouragement to them. He writes this letter to kind of help and guide them in serving where they're at. And for Timothy, like he's not in an easy place to serve. Like he's in a difficult place. Paul had planted this church there in Ephesus. He left Timothy there uh, to, to lead it. And Paul continued on and on his way to Macedonia and is traveling and writes this letter as a letter of encouragement back to a young pastor because Paul had poured his life into Timothy and Titus. Like he had taught them everything that he knew and, and led them and, and developed them and mentored them. And he called them even like, these are my children in the faith. So Paul had a very high view of them and he called them to stay with the church there and to preach the gospel. And if you look, we're not going to read it this morning, but if you look in those first few verses of chapter one, like he's telling Timothy, hey, listen, you're going to have to fight against this false gospel and continue to preach the true gospel, which has changed my life and which has changed your life. And you've got to fight for that. And so we see him uh, doing that, and he's reminding Timothy, hey, listen, like, it's not going to be easy, but I'm reminding you of my own personal experience. And you think about Paul, like, if you know anything about him, and we'll talk a little bit about him here in a minute, but, like, his life after Christ was not easy. Like, he was often uh, even stoned to where the point where people thought he was dead and left him for dead. He was thrown in jail for sharing the gospel. He was chased out of town or had to be snuck out of town for sharing the gospel. So he's reminding Timothy, listen, all these things that you've seen happen in my life, they're probably going to happen in yours, but be faithful and serve the Lord. Uh, and so this morning, what we're going to see uh, is Paul giving these encouraging words. And we'll see that Paul gives them by a way of praising God. And, and there's really just four points for this morning. The first would be that Paul is praising God for his providence. We're going to see that Paul is praising God for his grace and his mercy. And that Paul is praising God for his salvation. And then Paul is praising God for his position. So let's read together uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this morning. I thank you, Lord, just for all that has happened to lead us to this point of opening up your word and studying it. And Lord, I know, uh, Lord, we all come from different backgrounds. We come in maybe carrying the weight of the week or carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders, or maybe we've had a great week. Lord, I pray, uh, Lord, whatever is going on in our hearts, that this morning we would hear the truth of your word. Lord, we would be encouraged by it and we would be changed because we have been in your presence this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak to our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you look with me there in verse 12, we begin to see that God, uh, Paul is praising God for his providence. Paul starts off verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. 
And when Paul starts off this way, it's like, it's not just a simple thank you or a God, you're doing a great job. It is him saying, I have constant gratitude to God because of what he has done in my life, because of how he has changed me. Paul is thanking God for his salvation and and all that he's done to change Paul's life. Salvation was the first step in Paul's life-changing encounter with Christ. Like when you think about Paul, he's presently thanking God for strength that's been given to him for the purpose of being a servant. But it's, you know, Paul is currently traveling. Like I said, he's already been thrown in jail. He's left Timothy to lead this church. And Paul has already experienced these things. It's not just, you know, him praying and thanking God for physical strength. But as I talked about and shared with you earlier, it's also him praying and thanking God for like that emotional and that mental strength to continue to press on even in the midst of like difficult circumstances or, or hard uh, life situations. And Paul also says, listen, I'm thankful to God and I continually thank him because he also judged me faithful. You think about somebody like Paul, how could he say something like God has judged me faithful? Well, it's because of repentance. Like Paul, if you know anything about him, and we'll talk a little bit more about it here in just a second, but he had once trusted in a works-based, self-righteous work salvation. And he was trying to do all the right things to please God. But then God got a hold of his heart and he repented. Like Paul was walking in this direction and God called him to repentance. And repentance is just, he turned his back on, hey, I know this is wrong and it leads me nowhere good. So I turn my back on that and I'm going to walk towards God. And so when Paul repented and changed his life, he turned from doing it all on his own to trusting in Christ alone. He had turned from this false gospel that he warned Timothy about in uh, verses 3 through 11. He had turned from that to the true gospel. So first we do see that Paul is praising God uh, for his providence. But in verses 13 and 14, if you'll look there with me, you'll see that uh, Paul is also praising God for his grace and his mercy. So who was Paul, the author of this letter, before all of this? Well, if you look there in verses 13 and 14, he gives us a very clear picture of exactly who he was. He gives us kind of three words to describe himself. He says, first, I was a blasphemer. I don't know, that's not something like, hey, if you want to insult people or you want to call them a name, we don't often run up to somebody and be like, well, you're a blasphemer. Like, that's not really an insult or a a dig that we use at people today. But a blasphemer is simply somebody who speaks evil of or slanders God. They speak evil of or slander God. And it seems odd because Paul, as we know him and we read here in this text, he's so zealous for the law and he's so religious. Even before Paul came to Christ, Like he would have never said, hey, I'm a blasphemer. But now because he's come to Christ, he's repented of his sins and turned from that and turned to God. He says, listen, I was a blasphemer. And and you see it in Acts chapter 26, verse 9. Paul says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, Paul believed in the Old Testament, kept the Old Testament law, and like I said, he was very zealous for it. He's going to be like the chief keeper of the law. He wanted to be the best of the best. But in doing the very thing that he thought he was doing well, he actually was breaking the first five of the Ten Commandments because as a blasphemer, he's attacking the person of Christ. And if you look at those first five commandments, they deal with our relationship with God. And so Paul was uh, breaking the very thing that he thought he was keeping. But not just he was a blasphemer, he says also, the other two things he says, I was a persecutor and I was an insolent opponent. 
And I know insolent opponent, you're like, that's a weird uh, translation. I would go with the New American Standard translation of he was a persecutor and a violent aggressor. That, that kind of paints a better picture for us of, well, just how bad was Paul? But he sought to cause harm to those who claimed to know Christ. Paul, again, in his own words, said in Acts chapter 22, verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way, talking about Christianity and the Christian faith. He said, I persecuted them to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And then in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, but Saul, who's Paul before he encounters Christ, uh, was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, so if he found any Christians, any believers, men or women, that he could bring them bound to Jerusalem and basically throw them in jail or have them put to death. So when Paul describes himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, or this violent aggressor, like Paul is reminding you, hey, listen, like here's who I was before Christ. And as I said a while ago, as a blasphemer, he violated the first five commandments. Well, as a persecutor and a violent uh, offender or a violent aggressor, he violates the last of the five commandments because the last five of the commandments deal with our relationship with one another. He did not see people and treat them the way that God saw them and the way that God loved and cared for them. So all of this, if you think about this in light of who Paul is and what he said he believed and what he was doing before Christ— it just seems crazy to think that he thought what he was doing was right, but this is how he says, I live my life. But all of that changed, as you see in this text. He says, but I received mercy. Like Paul, again, he was, a, as one commentator described him, he was a zealous, fastidious Jew trying to earn his salvation, but he was lost. And when he was con uh, confronted by Christ, like you see his repentance and you see his turn to the Lord. But up until that point, Paul really thought he was doing God a service. Paul also in this text says, uh, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul knew he was guilty of his sin, and he wasn't trying to diminish, diminish that guilt or that sin by saying this. But his unbelief, if you, if you read this and dig a little deeper, his unbelief contained a form of ignorance, a form of ignorance that brought Jesus to the cross. If you look uh, in Acts chapter 3, when Peter's standing before the crowd and telling them about who Jesus is and how he's been put to death, he talks to them about this type of ignorance that Paul describes. In Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, Peter says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins can be forgiven. You see, Peter's testifying to these people about who Jesus is and who put him to death. And that resulted in these people repenting or turning from their sin, repenting and being saved at the day of Pentecost. And so that Paul saying, listen, this is the same thing. I thought that what I was doing was right. But when I was confronted with the truth of the gospel and I, I was confronted by Jesus and I saw him for who he really is and I saw that he really is the son of God and I know what he's done, I realized that I was living the wrong way. I realized I was believing and pursuing the wrong thing and he repented and turned and he says, listen, grace overflowed to me. Paul adds this extra emphasis to further the point that only the gospel of Jesus Christ could transform his life. 
Only God could do this in his life. And he compares that to the false gospel that he talks about in the very beginning of this. Paul is literally saying to the reader and to Timothy, he's saying, listen, God's grace superabounded towards me. So not only is God, or Paul praising God for his provision, his grace, and his mercy, but look in verse 15 and 16. He's praising God for his salvation. Let's read that again together. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving to full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason in, that in me as the foremost, Christ or Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Listen, Paul is reminding Timothy and all who hear this letter when he makes this statement of like, this is a true and trustworthy statement. What he's telling them and what I would tell you today as you read this is when you see that, understand that is him saying, listen, this is doctrinal truth. This is unchanging truth. No matter what comes before or what happens after, this is God's truth and it does not change. And he's saying, listen, you need to know this. You need to commit it to your mind. You need to commit it to your heart and live it out in your life. And he's saying that doctrinal statement is this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you look at Luke 19.10, Jesus himself says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In Luke 5.30 through verses 32, it says, The Pharisees and scribes are grumbling at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus answered them and said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Paul realized, hey, listen, I thought I was righteous, but in, in view of who Christ is and what he's done, I realized that I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. And he says, listen, of whom, talking about sinners, I am foremost. Now, listen, this is not Paul saying, hey, look, look at me. I'm chief of sinners. Look, here's my trophy. Here's my crown. Here's my sash or here's my title, because it's not something that he wanted or any of us, of us would want. But it's a reminder that, listen, God loves every single person. And that no one, and I tell you, and Paul would tell you too, no one has ever done anything that is too far gone for God to rescue or to redeem them from. There's no sin that is too great for God's grace and mercy and love to overcome. And Paul's salvation wasn't for his personal glory uh, or for God to use him as an example. And it's the same for us. Like God can use anybody for his good and for his glory. But Paul was saying, listen, it's all for the glory of God. The salvation of Paul and any of us is for God's glory alone. Paul's not bragging about his sin again or that he's in first place, but it's his humility and that he knows that everything that has happened in his life, the reason that he's been able to change and the reason that he's the person that he is today, the reason that he's able to train up and, and teach these pastors and mentor them and leave them and entrust God's people to them and that they'll lead them to the Lord is because he knows it's all because of Christ and what Christ has done in his life. And so we could say the same thing. Listen, I know there's many of us in this room that would say like Paul, listen, I have tried it on my own and I've worn myself out and I am mentally, physically, emotionally exhausted trying to do it on my own. And I have come to realize that I cannot do any good on my own, but praise God because of his salvation and his work in my life, I can do what he's called me to do. And praise God, we can all say that and agree that on that with Paul. You see, Paul's attitude shifted from, I can work myself into heaven 
because of my goodness and my works, to I am the worst of sinners. Paul was humbled. He used to think, hey, I'm the best, I'm the most religious. And then when he met Christ and encountered him, he realized, listen, I am a sinner who needs to be saved, and God has saved and rescued me. Paul also says, hey, listen, my salvation points to the perfect patience of God. If you read 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would count slowness, but he's patient towards us, not wishing that any of us would perish, but that all of us should reach repentance. Listen, Paul never got over what God had done in his life. He never forgot the change. He never forgot who he was before Christ and then what God had done to, to rescue and to redeem him. And if you don't believe me, like you can read Paul's letters to a lot of people and he's going to share his testimony and tell them, listen, here's who I was before Christ. And in case you forget and you proclaim to know Christ, here's who you also were before Christ. If you look in his letter to 1 Corinthians, you know, you read this letter and Paul is uh, having to go back and fix a lot of things. Like I know we say today and we look around like the world's crazy, you know, it's never been this bad. Well, if you read the Bible, you realize there's been crazy things going on for a long time because people are sinful and that's just what we do. Uh, but if you, if you read his letter, he's correcting and teaching and calling them to repentance. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11, he's kind of honing it in and, and nailing down some things and calls out some, some very specific sins. And it's not an exhaustive list by any means, but he gets real uh, pointed towards them in his conversation. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You're like, okay, good. He's naming all the sins. But then he turns and says, and such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, Paul never forgot who he was before Christ. And he's reminding Timothy as well and other readers, hey, listen, don't forget and think you're it. Don't forget you're the man or think you're the man or you've got it all figured out. Because listen, here's who you were. Anything that you have now is only because of Christ. So Paul is, is thanked him for his grace and mercy. He's praised him for his provision. Uh, he's thanked him for, and praised him for his salvation. But in verse 17, he kind of wraps up this little passage. And it's not really the end of the, the letter that he's written, but it almost reads that way. But he's praising God for his position. Uh, Paul begins by saying, listen, here's who God is. And he's praising him for his position. He says, first, he's the king of the ages. Uh, if you look there in verse 17, he says, To the king of the ages, the immortal, invisible, the only God. He starts out with this king of the ages. He's saying, listen, God is the absolute ruler of the ages, of time, of all time, and all that goes on in those ages. That there's nothing that has happened in times past that will happen in times present or in times future that God is not in control of. And so he's, he's praising God that he is the king of the ages. He's praising God that he's immortal. That's the second term that he gives him. He says uh, he is immortal. It doesn't mean what we always think that it means when you think of immortal, like that he just doesn't die. It's this idea that conveys in the Greek language that it is it's somebody that, which is uncorrupted, that they're not liable to corruption or decay. 
He's saying, listen, he's the king of the ages, and unlike any other king, he's in control of every single thing. There's nothing that goes on that he doesn't know about, but also he cannot be persuaded uh, to, to go one way or the other because he rules with absolute truth, and he rules with absolute honesty, and he cannot be corrupted, which is, if you read the Bible and you look around us, is not really true about leadership today. I mean, they can have the best of intentions, Oftentimes we see them or we read a story about how they've been corrupted or how they've been swayed by certain things. So Paul says, listen, praise God because he's the king of the ages. He's immortal. Then he says invisible. And Paul is reminding Timothy by saying he's invisible that God has revealed himself in who? In the person of Jesus Christ. He's revealed himself in his son. He's reminding him that believers can view the glory of God in the person of Jesus John 1.14 tells us, And the Word became flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we have seen the glory of God. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he kind of ends these titles by saying, He is not only the King of the ages, that He's not only immortal, that He's not only invisible, but He says He is the only God. There is no other competition. There is no other God that can come and stand before this God that you serve, who has changed your life and has changed my life and done all of these things and is continuing to lead you to serve him. There's nobody else that can come against him. There is no competition. It has been settled forever. And then he kind of concludes this verse by saying, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See, Paul's reminding this young pastor, Timothy, listen, here is who we serve. Here's what he has done. And here's what he's going to do. You know, if you're like me and you've grown up in church, oftentimes we hear people in a church setting uh, say amen. And I remember as a kid thinking like, why are these people talking in church? Because I'm being elbowed and told I'm not allowed to talk in church. But this guy over here just shouted amen. Uh, and I can remember when I went to seminary at Mid-America there in Memphis, Tennessee, our uh, president, uh, Dr. Gray Allison, uh, his wife, Miss Von Seal, would come. And if Dr. Gray was preaching, Miss Von Seal sat on the very front row and she was his ameneer. And if she didn't do it enough, he would look at her and say, You missed one. And I can remember my first time, I think Amanda and I had gone to our Founders Day, which was like campus revival at the very beginning. And Dr. Gray was telling the story of Mid America and how everything got started. And Miss Von Seal, I don't know if she just said like, you know, enough amens or what, but she had stopped. And at that point, I can just remember like we were keeping a running count. I know that's not what you're supposed to do in a service, but she was like up in the 40s of amen. So I never understood like, why do people do that? Well, if you look it up and you, you think about it or you read about it, that amen is signifying, it's an emphatic word that it, uh, is written, especially here to affirm that all that precedes it is truth. So when somebody says amen in a, in a church service, what they're signifying is not, hey, look at me, I'm the guy that says amen. What they're saying is what that pastor just preached or what they just shared is truth, and I agree with it, and I'm saying amen to it. And so when Paul is writing this, and this letter's being read to Timothy, and it's being read to all these readers, you think about that doctrinal statement and his encouragement of, this is what God has done in my life, it's, it's finished with this emphatic amen to remind them, hey, listen, I'm not just sharing my opinion. I'm not just sharing my thoughts, 
but what I am telling you is what I have experienced and what I know to be true about God. And so Paul's reminding these readers uh, of this by concluding by saying in verse 17, amen. All right, so now we come to the part like, what do we do with all of this that we've just heard? Well, as I I began this morning talking to you about, like, if you've been discouraged or you're struggling or you feel overwhelmed with life, like, hopefully, like Timothy, you read this letter and you receive some encouragement. And one of the ways that I think we do this, and and I purposely started uh, each point with the two words of praising God. Because I think that when we get discouraged or we feel down and out or we feel overwhelmed or we're stressed or like life is just not what we want it to be and we think, God, how did we get here? What are you going to do to fix this? Or I don't like this. Oftentimes we can redirect those thoughts, those attitudes, those emotions back to seeing who God is and seeing him for what he's done in our lives. And we do that by praising him. Like every one of these points, like I purposely chose to start them uh, with praising God. Because praising God reminds us, like in verse 17, of who God is. It also reminds us of what God has done for us, that he has offered us the gift of salvation. You know, Romans 5, 8 tells us that like, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we could care less about serving God or changing our ways, he sent his son to die on a cross to pay the price for our sins so that we could be offered the gift of salvation. Praising God reminds us not only of what God has done, but it reminds us of just how much God loves and cares for each and every one of us. Praising God reminds us also of who we are apart from Christ. You see and you read scripture, it's very clear that apart from Christ, listen, we're hopeless. Apart from Christ, we see our lives the way Paul saw his of, listen, I am violent. I'm a violent aggressor. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an opponent of God. I see myself as I'm separated from God because of the sin in my life. And because of that sin, and no matter how hard I work or no matter what I do or how good I am, how many times I come to church or how many times I go to a group or how many Bible studies I'm a part of, I can never overcome the cost or the consequences of my sin. But praise God, it doesn't just show us who we are apart from Christ, but it also shows us who we are in Christ. That we are people who are rescued from our sins. That we are people who have been redeemed and the price has been paid for our sins when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are a people who have been set free. We've been forgiven. Uh, we, uh, we can now be called children of God. When we were set apart before, now we're welcome to the family and we're a part of, of God's family and called his children because we've repented of our sins. We've turned from that way of life and, and confessed Christ as our Lord and Savior. So this morning, as we kind of get ready to wind things down and we move to a time of response or an invitation, today, like I said earlier, maybe you're here and you came in and you're just searching, or maybe you're hurting, or maybe you're miserable, or maybe you're feeling like you are not good enough for God to love. Listen, I would tell you, and I know there are countless others that would tell you, and I know our pastor would tell you, listen, there's hope in Jesus. There is hope for all of us in Jesus and his plan of salvation. Paul in God's word reminds us that no one is too far gone. Nobody is too great of a sinner or too horrible for God to rescue. You see, we are all sinners who are separated, lost, and, hurt, and set apart and hopeless uh, from Christ. But today, if you'll confess your sins to God, if you'll repent of those sins and profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, as simple as I'm talking to you right now, you can talk to God. He will save you. 
He will rescue you. He will redeem you. He will forgive your sins. He will give you a newness of life to walk in. And I promise you, this church will love and care for you like no other. Because our desire is to see you grow and to serve the Lord. Uh, so maybe you need to make that decision now or this morning. You can do that now. Uh, you can do that during our time response when Dwayne comes back up here to lead us in a song. Uh, but don't wait or don't leave the same way that you came in. Or maybe you're here today and you would say, listen, I've trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Let me ask you, are you praising God? Do you remember who you were before Christ and rejoice over who you are now in Christ? Maybe you respond today by singing during our time of invitation. Maybe you take just a minute to pray or you come to the altar or you just say, God, I thank you for what you've done in my life and just start naming all those things. Because I promise you, when you feel overwhelmed and you feel down and out or you feel like you're not good enough, praising God will shift those thoughts to, hey, listen, I'm not good enough, but I know the one who is. I know the one who loves and cares for me and I know what he says is true about me. Or maybe you're here today and you're searching for a church home and somewhere to grow in your walk with the Lord. I can tell you this is a great church that will love you and they will help you grow. And we'd love for you to join today. Whatever the Lord is leading you to do this morning, would you respond today? Let's stand to our feet as we pray. Father God, we again just thank you for the day and thank you for our time together here this morning. I thank you for each and every person that's here. Lord, I know, uh, God, it's no accident that we are here gathered together uh, to study your word and to sing praises to you uh, for who you are and what you've done in our lives. Lord, I do pray, Lord, if there are people who are hurting or searching or, Lord, are just feeling the weight of sin and consequences in their life, Lord, I pray that today... God, above any other day would be the day of their salvation. Lord, I pray that they would see you for who you are and that you love them. God, you care for them. You sent your son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the price for their sins. Lord, that they would repent of those sins. They would turn away from that life and, Lord, turn to you. And, Lord, they would confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And, Lord, they would begin just to walk in that newness of life that your word promises us. Lord, again, I just, I pray for those that know you. Lord, maybe we're going through a hard time or having a difficult week. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by the words we read this morning. Uh, Lord, from a great missionary and pastor to a young pastor, Lord, I pray that it would encourage our hearts and remind us to just to take time and stop and praise you. Lord, whether that's for your provision, whether that's for your grace and your mercy or the gift of salvation, or Lord, or just for who you are, Lord, that we would praise you and be reminded of how you love us and care for us. Lord, I pray that as we go through this time of invitation and this response, Lord, that you be glorified and honored. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll be down front, and there's others as well if you'd like to come forward.